My name is Scott Walter and I'm a forensic geologist. I spent years studying mysterious symbols, relics, and ancient artifacts. If history was written by the winners, the most interesting parts are written by those. There's something to hide. Is this secret society doing something nefarious? I don't think it exists. I disagree. America Unearthed. Season premiere next Saturday at 9 on H2. More to history. How's it going, my fellow history scholars? Welcome back to the podcast where we talk about the unanswered questions of history and unravel the mystery of past. I'm your host today, and with me is special guest Scott Walter and Janet Walter. Scott Walter is the author of several books, including The Hooked Decks, Akhenaten to the Founding Father, and Kensington Runestone, Compelling New Evidence, as well as the host of the TV show, America on Earth. Scott, thank you for joining us. Hey, Jacob, it's good to be here. I'm looking forward to chatting. Who's that pretty girl on the upper right there? Yes, and with us as well is Janet Walter, who is also the author, and she is the author of America, Nation of the Goddess, co-author with Alan Butler, and a phenomenal researcher. And I know you've done a ton of stuff behind the scenes with Scott, and I, I'm excited to see other possible books that you may be publishing. So thank you for joining us as well. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. It is a privilege to be with both of you since you guys are both very, very great researchers in, shall we call it, the secret history of, of North America. Yes. The little known, little known facts of North America. Yeah, so. yeah, for sure. Um, well, there's no question about that. I mean, there's a, um, I, you know, it's, it's such a vast, deep well uh, of inquiry that um, it, it's, we're certainly, you know, not going to finish anything in our lifetimes. Um, but if anything, I hope that we have, um, you know, opened the door and made more people aware of all the things that are here. And, um, you know, it's, it's, we're really just scratching the surface of, of all the things that are here. So it's going to be fun. Um, we're going to give it our best shot for as long as we can. But I think we've made a little bit of noise, but we're not done making noise. Right, Jan? That's right. We've got a long way to go. Lots of things to tell. Yeah, for sure. And uh, you were even talking about, Scott, in the forward to uh, uh, Janet's book, American Nation of the Goddess, how uh, kind of after you were able to raise your kids, you guys ultimately went on this awesome dynamic duo with all this research that you guys went on to conquer and all these different <laughs> sites that you began to show really aren't what we, we thought they were. Uh, the right. runestone, uh, a lot of the stuff we see in Washington, D.C., uh, New York. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the stuff that both of you guys have talked in uh, the books that you guys have both published. Well, if I might just say that um, when it comes to things like Washington, D.C. and all uh, many other cities in, in, uh, in our nation, uh, our, our founding fathers and uh, other Masonic brothers um, left their imprint. Um, and it was, you know, a lot of people say they did it secretly. Well, they really didn't do it secretly. They just um, put it out there. And, you know, it's one of those things where if you are initiated and you have the eyes to see, then all of a sudden you realize that many of these great cities 
have all kinds of things that they can tell you if you just know what to look for. And I don't know if you are uh, want me to say anything, Jacob, but I understand you recently took your first degree, uh, entered apprentice. So um, I'm very proud and happy to now call you my brother. And uh, even though Janet isn't a Freemason, she is initiated. And um, so you two are brother and sister. I can call you brother too. Awesome. Yeah. yeah for sure. Are, are you a member of uh, Eastern Star? No, I am not. I'm not. I'm in some other orders, but not Eastern Star. Maybe yeah. someday. We don't so, have one in Scott's Lodge, his home lodge. So I would have to go somewhere else to be part of Eastern Star. But I think it would be cool. Oh, there's so many very interesting Masonic bodies. And I, I think the more that you, you take on, and I, I've just started my journey, obviously. But I've researched the, the different bodies, kind of bodies for quite a few years now. And just the amount of stuff that's in all these different degrees, you can learn so much. And I'm sure you guys have used that as well with all the, the books that you've published, that insight into some of these sites. Yes. And, and not only that, but just getting to know the, the various people in these different groups is has been really fun. And we work very closely with some of the brothers mm -hmm. on our own research and get their feedback all the time. And we just had them over yesterday over to the house here and we had a, a, a pretty long lunch, didn't we, Scott? <laughs> <laughs> well, it was supposed to be, you know, typically we meet regularly with this group and, you know, you had asked us off air if we're working on anything new and the answer is yes. Um, we are working on probably the biggest, most exciting project we've ever worked on. Actually, we're working on two big projects, but um, one of the projects we've been meeting regularly with a, a, a small group, but people that we really respect people that absolutely know what they're talking about. But the other thing that's important is they give us critical feedback, <clears throat> you know, and it's one thing to, you know, sit around with like-minded people and everybody's patting each other on the back, talking about how much they agree and, oh, you're right about this, you're right about that. Um, and that's nice to hear, but really that doesn't help us push the ball down the field where it needs to go. And, you know, even yesterday, I got a little bit testy with, you know, a really good friend, um, you know, and I, I thought he was he was being a little bit uh, dismissive of uh, some documents. And, it, you know, we, we kind of had it out a little bit. And I said, look, if you're going to dismiss the the uh, the document, then how can you take what the content seriously? And and he clarified his position. And I wanted to make sure that we understood where each other was coming from and, you know, and, you know, we got after it a little bit, but he's a skeptic and, you know, we need that input. We got to make sure. And I like to think that I'm objective, that I'm looking at things critically hundred percent all the time, but let's face it. A lot of the work that we're doing, if I look at a document and, and it supports the Knights Templar being here prior to Columbus, um, I want that to be true. Um, there's no question about that. But at the same time, because of my training in forensics, I try to be objective. I try to look at it critically. But if for some reason I stumble, I got guys like Jerry and the others that will keep me honest and keep me, uh, you know, make sure that we don't run into that problem. I'm human, too. And we all make mistakes. But to have people that are really smart um, and look at things objectively and with a critical eye is is vital.
and it worked it works well doesn't it jan yeah it works really well and it, and it's nice to have a variety in the group jerry's our skeptic and then we have john who's our our quiet thinker <laughs> yeah he always comes up with something good though because he yeah. he really molds it over and he produces a lot of great research too and there's other people have come in and out of our group including Darwin Omen, who is the grandson of Olaf Omen, yep. who is oh, wow. the founder, the finder of the Kensington Ruinstone here in Minnesota, his grandfather. Yep. And, and Darwin is just, he's a wonderful, kind, gentle soul, but he'll tell you what he thinks. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he's that Minnesota nice, but, you know, he's not afraid. And he, he doesn't come out and bark at all, ever. No. But what he'll do is he'll say it in a way that, by the time you're kind of done answering me, go, oh, he was kind of taking a shot at me there or asking me <laughs> to maybe rethink my position or, or whatever I might have said. But he's a wonderful guy. We love him to death. And, and, and you know, it's, it's, we're very fortunate to have these people. You know what they say, um, surround yourself with, with people that are smarter than you and, and you'll, you'll be in good company. Well, I can definitely yeah. say that's the case. Um, and Janet's part of that group, so. Yeah, we have a good time. As long as I feed them when they come over here, they're generally not too ornery with us. That was a beautiful <laughs> meal yesterday, Jan. Good job. Oh, thanks. Thanks. Good old wild rice soup from Minnesota. We have lots of wild rice in this state. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like you guys were saying, I, I think it's very crucial to have a, a good team, especially when it comes to subjects like the ones that you guys are researching. It's critical to make sure that you're getting this research right because it's a field that hasn't been explored as nearly as much as the, the mainstream. Yeah. Well, you know, if, if you if you want to indulge me for just a second, um, you know, Jerry is also a biblical scholar. He's one of the guys that was on the original Telpia tomb research team with uh, Simca Giacobavici and James Tabor and Charlie Pellegrino. And if people don't know what the Telpiot tomb is, you need to Google it. It's T-A-L-P-I-O-T. It's a uh, an underground family tomb that was discovered in 1980 mm -hmm. in Jerusalem. And these underground tombs um, can, uh, basically existed for uh, about 100 years. And it was a particular sect of Jews that had a very unique burial practice, how they handled their dead. They would process the bodies, put them inside these beers, uh, these benches for the body to desiccate inside of a shroud. And then after one to two years, they would take the bones and put them inside of a box called an ossuary that was only large enough for the two largest bones in the body, your femurs, to fit in crossed. And then they would put the skull in last. And now you know the origin of the skull and crossbones. But, um, but, but this particular group of people um, were the Essene, and they were Jesus's people, and Mary Magdalene, and John the Baptist, and, and these uh, other biblical uh, uh, people. And one of the things that we were talking about yesterday was a document that contained heretical information that the kind of information that the Templars would have had, the kind of information that they could have used to blackmail the Roman Catholic Church. And we know 
that it was documents like this and information within those documents that gave the Templars the upper hand, the uh, knowledge to be able to say, look, <laughs> back off, right? And this particular document we were talking about yesterday would absolutely undermine the very basis of Christianity and, and bring it literally to its knees. So that kind of information had to be kept very secret um, except when you needed to inform people. So we, what we wanted to do, and we are still in the process of doing, we're not going to talk about any of this stuff until we know that it, it is, it's bulletproof as we can get it. Um, if it's not bulletproof, we'll say so. If we think it is what it is, I will say so. Um, because, you know, I, I, I mean, I know what the Templars were about. I mean, the people, the leadership of the Templars were the ideological and bloodline descendants of these biblical figures that we're talking about. So if anybody would have that information, it would be them. And they would covet that information because it was extremely personal to them. And as it turns out, the Templars ideologically were not at all aligned with the Roman Catholic Church. And that's one of the reasons that you don't hear about uh, in the in the uh, academic world or in the religious world, because they don't want to talk about that. They won't talk about that. But when they found out what their true ide ideology was that had nothing to do with Roman Catholicism, that's they were pissed. And that's one of the reasons why they arrested, tortured, and burned them. Um, because they had realized that, that the Templars weren't who they thought they were. And good for the Templars. But that's my personal opinion. Right. It's always that question of uh, how did it start as these original nine knights and then turn into an order that was a state within a state, essentially? What yeah. was this knowledge or how did they get this uh, amazing power? How did they grow so big? And uh, that's a lot of what you guys have been investigating. Right, right. Well, and and beyond that, there, you know, they took it much further than that. I mean, you know, one of the things that I, I, I laugh about is the historical narrative is the Templars captured Jerusalem and held on to it for several decades. And then the and then the Muslims and Saladin defeated them and, and drove them out. Well, the truth is they captured Jerusalem under the guise of being the soldiers uh, for Christ. Right when in fact really all they were doing was securing a base of operations in the Middle East so that they could spend the next several decades going into the regions around there collecting documents, uh, technology, um, uh, you know, certainly wealth, gold, silver, jewels, and the remains of important historical figures. But it was that knowledge and technology um, that was most important. Uh, specifically about astronomy, uh, geometry, uh, mathematics, uh, and navigation. These are the keys to understanding navigation. Those three things I just mentioned, you will be hearing more and more as you go through your Masonic journey. Mathematics, geometry, and astronomy. Pay attention. It's time to liberal arts, yep. You've, you've, heard, you've heard those. Yes, and you know, my co-author, Alan Butler, he's really an expert on the Templars, the Europe side story of the Templars. And he was surprised when he met us that 
the information we were getting, and especially the Kensington Runestone, that, that, that they had come over here. He had no idea the story of the Templars continued over in North America. And he was very surprised by that, but I give him all the credit in the world for embracing the possibility and exploring it with us. And I think he was as surprised as anybody to see that what we were finding had merit. Yeah, absolutely. Are you talking about Darwin, Jan? Uh, oh, I'm I cut sorry. out. No, I'm talking about, about Alan. I'm talking about Alan. Oh, Butler. Alan Butler. Right, right. Oh, okay, you cut yeah. out for a sec on me, but I thought you were talking about Darwin. You could almost say the same thing about him, you know. And and I got to give, I can't give enough props and and credit to to Alan Butler, Janet's co-researcher. Um, this guy is absolutely brilliant, and he mm -hmm. knows more about the Knights Templar than any scholar out there. And what I mean by that is he understands the true ideology, the true yeah. Templar order, what they were really all about. And, you know, when, when he and I came together early on, I was starting to fumble in the dark, you know, with, with the goddess veneration and the feminine aspect of the Godhead and, you know, the, 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 the veneration of the planet Venus and everything associated with that. I was just starting to to get into that. And when I met Alan and read his books, it was, it was uh, an epiphany for me. And um, I, I just can't tell you how much I, I love and respect him. And I, I'm, I'm honored to call him a good friend. And, um, you know, he's so humble and, and he just doesn't, you know, he doesn't push his own case, but he is truly one of the brilliant minds of our time, in my opinion. Right. He is he absolutely. He was oh, one I was of the first say, ones you guys went to, right? What was that? Oh, you're, you're cutting out a little bit. But uh, I was going to say, he was one of the, the first researchers you guys kind of went to. And uh, you and you and Alan really kicked it off, Janet. And uh, if you guys haven't read we it, did. American Nation of the Goddess, definitely, oh, definitely yeah. check it out. Oh. <laughs> yes. I hear the foreword in that book is really good. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You can skip the foreword and get right into the meat of the book. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, no, you. Well, you you and Alan wrote a wonderful thank book. You. Oh, thank you so much. And yeah, well, the, the like forward was good too, Scott. Yeah, I thought it was good, yeah. but no, yeah. no. You know what? It's I, I. I think the one thing that Alan does and Janet did really, really well in their book actually better than me in my book. I think sometimes I, I have almost too much detail and I go pretty far into the weeds, but Janet and, and Alan have a really nice way of saying something that's complicated in a relatively simple way so that people can understand it. And, right, and that's what I love they about really, that. really did a good job with that, you know? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. We, we tried to do that because it was, it's, it can be a complicated subject, especially if you get into the things about the megalithic yard and how important that was and what all that reflects. And, um, and Venus, you know, it's a, it was tracking Venus that allowed them to be able to standardize the megalithic yard because you didn't have to have, you know, the king's arm or his foot to, to have a measurement be the same thing all around the world. But if you just track right. a planet and you know what you're doing, and there's a time component to it as well, which is a, a, a 
part of measurement we've lost in the modern era. But uh, Alan understood. He figured out how they did all that, and he blew me away with that. But we see the megalithic yard as a sacred measure that was still being used by our founding fathers, hidden in plain sight. Yep. Right. And I think there's so many amateur historians that really want an access to to the stuff that you guys are talking about. And the fact that yeah. you guys are able to write it in a language that people can understand. I think that's why so many people find it so intriguing and uh, people admire you guys because mm -hmm. it is easier to understand a lot of these academic textbooks and stuff that you, you read in college and in school are in, almost impossible to to understand everything that they have to say. So. When you guys write it in a language that other people can understand, it, it helps foster that that fascination. And you, uh, you, you brought hit up the nail. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head because you could be the smartest guy in the world, but if you talk over people's heads all the time and they don't understand what you're talking about, what good is it, right? Right, and sadly, that's a lot of the, the college experience nowadays. But I wanted to. Yeah. Yeah. Trust me, I know for sure. But uh, you yeah. brought an interesting yeah. connection about the Grange and this whole story of the Venus families. And I wanted to touch on that because I think that made your book with Alan specifically stand out because you guys did a lot of research with the Templars, but then I knew nothing about the Grange. And I think that was what made a nation of the goddess stand out. And we didn't either. Yeah, we didn't either. Um, the reason it even came up was because Alan was familiar with the Granges, which were the Cistercian monastic farms where they, they raised their crops and their animals. And that was a lot of what their wealth came from because they were able to turn poor farmland into rich farmland because they knew how to raise sheep and the sheep would graze and they'd eat just about anything and then they would fertilize the soil. So that was one thing he was very familiar with. And I had never heard the granges as a term, I just know farm, right? As an American. But then one day we were talking about New Grange in Ireland and New Grange had a passage to him that's about 5,000 years old. Venus, the light of Venus comes in. She said Newgrange to me. I said, Grange. I've heard of the word Grange before, but in the context of um, something that the farmers had back in the 1800s called the Grange. And it was what I thought was a farmer's union. So they, they could um, get fair pricing from the railroads and other modes of transportation to get their goods to market. And he said, what? In his very English way. What? There was something called the Grange in America? I've never heard of this. And he said, I wonder if it could be connected somehow. And we had, we, we at that time, we thought, there is no way these two things are going to be connected. But they were, amazingly. And so the Grange is, I guess I would call it a, um, a pseudo-Masonic. organization, but it was founded by Freemasons. And it was after the Civil War and Oliver Hudson Kelly, who was from Boston, but it had moved out here to Minnesota via farmer, had been very successful in farming with book farming, where he was learning different methods and 
writing articles about it and the Department of Agriculture heard about him. And they said, we need somebody to go down to the South after the war now and find out what's going on down there with the farm families. Are they gonna be able to produce extra, extra grains and vegetables? Because we have to get food to the market up here in the cities where we were trying to, you know, they were trying to get everything going with the big industry, right? And so he was able to make connections, Oliver Hudson Kelly was as a Freemason with farmers in the South because of that, because he was a Freemason. Otherwise, they never would have trusted him as a Northerner. So Freemasonry superseded that, which was amazing. And so they, they founded the Grange as an organization to bring light to farm families and to also help them heal from the terrible war that they had been through. And it was all based on the mysteries of Demeter which was all about agriculture and goddess veneration. And women were part of the Grange. In fact, a certain number of, of officer positions in the Grange have to be filled by women. So that was kind of an amazing thing that Alan and I stumbled upon. And Scott and I joined the Grange for a while up here in Minnesota. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah so what it was, was neat it? to Four or five to years. <clears throat> yeah, uh, you were cutting in and out a little there. Go yeah, ahead, I Scott. just wanted to bring up you were cutting in and out there a little bit. So uh, hopefully there, it do, hopefully was, it doesn't do that. But yeah. Oh okay. Yeah. I, it I wonder was if there's a way you point. can fix your connection or something. But yeah, I have no it. idea how to fix the connection. <laughs> Well, we have we have sort of a spotty connection where we live out here, and so I'm not surprised. But um, yeah, we were we were members of the Grange for about five years, four or five years. I don't remember exactly, but um, in our particular Grange, things got a little bit uh, too political for us. And um, yeah, you know, it's not, you, you get organizations where you get um, you know relative few people that are more interested in in power and control, it, it, it um, sort of takes away from the whole experience. And um, although we absolutely support the Grange, we just felt like it was time for us to move on. And uh, we just, to be honest with you, we're so busy, we just don't have time to, to do all the things I would like to do. I mean, I'm, I'm a member of several Masonic bodies, but I, I can only, I'm only one person. So I stay active in my home lodge and with the Scottish right, and I just, you know, that's that's it. You have to you have to draw the line. I remember when I first became a Mason, they said the most important word that you have to learn is no, <laughs> because a lot of people invite you to do a lot of things, yep. and you know, you uh, you really have to make sure that you don't overextend yourself. Yeah, exactly. Um, as far as we were talking about the Grange, uh, continue on that. Uh, my dad's actually watching and he brought up something. Uh, he was saying, ironically, I learned about the Grange watching uh, Little House on the Prairie. And uh, I believe, yeah, I believe, I think his name's Charles. Uh, my dad watched the show, yes, but I, Charles I can't remember his name. Charles was a member of the Grange. And uh, it mm -hmm. doesn't surprise me, though, because what were some of the first things that these rural agricultural communities were setting up? Setting up farms, churches, and a Masonic Lodge. They're, the, mm -hmm. Right. 
pretty much the three most prevalent things of the community. Right, right. But the nice thing about the Grange is it involves the women. And, uh, you know, I loved, um, you know, Jan, you would know when, when this was said, but, um, you know, the, the one thing about the Grange that really brought people together and brought women into the equation was it doesn't matter if you're a Democrat, you're Republican, a Confederate or somebody in the North, everybody's got to eat. Um, you can be a ditch digger, you can be a lawyer, you can be a doctor. Uh, everybody has to have food on the table. So it was the, the Grange was the kind of thing that was uh, like Freemasonry, where the central tenets are things that unite people together, not talking, you know, not focusing on things that divide people. Uh, the Grange is absolutely a perfect example of that. So from a Masonic standpoint, it made, makes all the sense in the world that it would be uh, an outgrowth, if you will, of, uh, of the fraternity that became a co-fraternity with both men and women. And it's, that's one of the things that I've always loved about it. It's, and frankly, you know, and, and Jacob, as you go through your journey, I think you'll come to, to, to say the same thing. Um, there's nothing in Freemasonry that we do that women can't handle. Um, I, but I also understand and respect the fraternity and its history. But make no mistake, there's there's nothing that, that the women, um, <laughs> they could handle all of it. And, and frankly, in many ways, they could, they could um, you know, bring a different perspective. But, you know, it's an institution that's been around for uh, a very, very long time, and, and we're not going to change it today. And, um, you know, but, you know, that's, that's the truth of the matter. Right. And if we're talking about these original Venus families, it, men and women were equal. So I think, honestly, the only reason with the Masonic connection to that, that women are not necessarily allowed to be part of Blue Lodge is because of that. It, it's just tradition. It's not that they're against it's it tradition. because they're connected to the Venus family. So obviously... Right. If that connection is this exists, then they can't have that bias. Right, <clears throat> right, right. But uh, that, that's we have a people. viewer here. Yeah, we had a viewer here, Jenny, and she was asking, uh, suggesting the Catholic institution may be a perversion of the original Christians, and that Templars are going back to the original practices and beliefs. So she wanted to know more about the, the Catholic persecution of, uh, of these Templars. Well, yeah, I think, I think in a way that's exactly what it was. Perversion is maybe a, a difficult word, and I want to be sympathetic to the Christians out there because, um, you know, people have their belief systems, and that's a personal choice. And, you know, I'm not here to try to, um, you know, condemn anyone's beliefs. However, what I will condemn are some of the practices of exclusion, of um, you know, putting women down and elevating the masculine aspect of uh, of the Godhead, and and just the way that they treat people. Um, I, I got a big problem with that when, in fact, um, you could say that it's a corruption, maybe, of uh, some older beliefs that the Templars embraced, and the Church chose to go a different route and. Um, the Templars, like I said before, are descendants of these people that the church focused on during biblical times to create a different story that frankly didn't happen. Um, you know, um, you know, people can have their own opinions. My opinion is until I see somebody rise from the dead or I see a virgin birth, 
uh, I'm not I'm not buying it. Uh, I don't believe it. And I can tell you the Templars didn't believe it. And um, so this was one of the fundamental differences they had with the Roman Church. And frankly, the Roman Church didn't come up with their uh, their narrative until you know the the third and, and fourth centuries. You know, it started with the Council of Nicaea, and um, yeah. you know they they chose to pick certain gospels that were going to support the narrative that they wanted people to to believe and the ones that didn't were written out well you can't do that <laughs> i mean they did it um but uh you, you can't just pick and choose the facts that you want uh to to support a story that you want people to believe and frankly i would i believe that um this uh corrupted I don't know if I'd say perverted, but corrupted narrative has not been good for um, for this planet, for for humanity. Um, and you know, those are those are tough words for some people to hear. But I truly believe that. And um, I think you know, look, the, the church's history speaks for itself. The Templars are one example. They didn't toe the line. So instead of sitting down and having a discussion about it. They ordered their arrest, they tortured them, and they burned them. Um, I don't think that's the appropriate response when people have a difference of opinion, which, which is really what it was all about. It was a difference in ideology, a, a difference in, in belief systems. And there's, there's other ways to handle that <laughs> than torture and burning. Um, but again, the persecution of, 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 of the Jews for, 2000 years uh, and longer by uh, by Christian by Christians is um, and then you know the, you've got other religions that um, you know use the name of their deity what they believe their deity is to persecute another group of people and it's it's just wrong it's just wrong right I yeah. think it and hit the head on the nail there the yeah. Venus families always the Venus families and the Templars were trying to keep alive something that was very very ancient and that was you know the elevation of the sacred feminine women are the life givers and i think in some ways the romans were intimidated by that and that was one of the reasons that they they behaved the way they did towards women it became a very patriarchal society and uh you know i i think we're seeing two thousand years of the results of that in many aspects of our society today. Well, I think what we're seeing is a culmination of, of two millennia of, almost two millennia of, of this ideology that sort of had its way for a long time. And um, in, in my view, it's, it's running its course. Um, you know, the world is changing and, you know, people I mean, you know, young people, every, every generation are, are growing up and, and they're asking the big questions, you know, is there a God out there? What happens after I die? What is life all about? You know, what are the answers to these big questions in life? And, you know, there's more than one way to, to get those answers. And, you know, I think the fundamental issue uh, between religion and things like Freemasonry and, and there are certainly other groups, other organizations that practice a similar uh, way of going about answering those big questions. But really what it boils down to this 
is um, in organized religion, it requires a conduit, a human conduit between people and creator. And you are required to go through this conduit. Whereas in Freemasonry and just other spiritual based practices, um, you can have a relationship with Didi all by yourself. You don't need a human conduit. It's when the human conduit gets involved, uh, that's when all the problems start, right? And that's exactly what is, has been the downfall of the church. And, you know, I mean, you know this now as, as, a, as a brother Mason. When you took your obligation, um, you know, you probably took it on a Bible, but you could have taken it on the Quran, on the Torah. Uh, Native brothers take theirs on an eagle feather because what, it, it, whatever you call deity, right? It doesn't matter what you call it or how you, you venerate it. We're all talking about the same thing. So that's why in Lodge, you know, we focus on the things that unite us as brothers. And we don't talk about politics and we don't talk about religion because this is what divides people. And I think that's just a beautiful mantra. And I think, you know, and this is why the church condemns Freemasonry. They don't like us for the very reason that we don't actively preach what I just said. You won't hear any Mason ever say that. I'm saying it because I know it to be true. And I think it's important that somebody has to stand up and say it. And I've taken a lot of criticism criticism for it, but I don't really give a rip. Uh, it's the truth. And sometimes the truth hurts. And I think deep down, whether you're a Christian or uh, any other religion or no religion, um, you know what I'm saying. Uh, it rings true because it is true. And we're seeing the fallout of that now. Young people who are still answering, asking these big questions, fewer and fewer of them are, are trying to find those answers in organized religion. They're using other ways to try to, to get to that spiritual balance that we all want to try to achieve. And I think that's a good thing. If people want to pursue organized religion, whether it's Christian faith, Jewish faith, whatever, good for them. That's, that's your choice. But where it becomes a problem is where certain religions will look down on other people for not embracing their faith or, in fact, persecute them, which they have done many times throughout history. That's just not that's not the way to do it. Exactly. I would agree. God, now I sound like a preacher. (laughs) Yes. And, And make it clear that Freemasonry is not a religion. No, 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 not yep. at all. Nope. Right. No, they, they, although we, I would although say it's inherently do, religious, but it's not a religion yeah. in itself. No, well, you know, but but the thing is, we do have to, you know. That's what Manly uh, Fee said. It's the will. It's to the will and pleasure of the of the worshipful master of the lodge, right? Well, the funny part is, as soon as his year is up, he goes back to being a, a brother, uh, just like the rest of us, right. and all those privileges he had are taken away like that. So. And that's when um, it becomes the, the grumpy past master. That grumpy past master. <laughs> or in many lodges, they go back to being the Tyler, right? And they start they start over again. So um, I, I think it's uh, I think it's a really beautiful system. That's why so many organizations throughout history have taken the Masonic model and sort of made it their own, twisted it around a little bit, like the Grange. I mean, I think that's a positive one. Uh, right. The Mormon faith is based solely on on freemasonry and um it's uh it's 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 a different version of it but it's it's 
the basic elements are there. And I think when, when you're doing something right, uh, isn't, isn't imitation the highest form of flattery? It tells you you're doing something right. Right. And we had another uh, viewer comment here. And uh, I'll give this one to Janet because you helped research the, the grain. Right. Alan. Uh, but Sharon was asking uh, if Massachusetts colonials may have been a part of the Grange. Uh, the Grange didn't start until the 1800s, after the Civil War. So yeah. the colonial people would not have been part of the Grange organization as we know it today. However, the ancient mystery schools and Demeter specifically, the mysteries of Demeter in Greece were very ancient, and that's what the Grange, a lot of the Grange was based on, was the foundation of the whole interaction of the sun with Mother Earth and agriculture and embracing that cycle of life that we see at death in the winter, rebirth in the spring, and harvest in the autumn. And that is a key foundation to the Grange and to much of what the Venus families believe in and, and promote. So not quite the colonials, but um, sometime after that. But the Grange was very big in New England. But it could have existed in Massachusetts. Oh, okay. absolutely. Yeah, I think that answers that question very good. It just wasn't officially the Grange until after the Civil War. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's a good answer. Uh, I wanted to get back into uh, the Templars because I've been researching something uh, recently and I wanted to get your thoughts on uh, Scott, you might be able to answer this one. What do you, have you heard or what do you think about the, the order of Santiago? Um, enlighten me on the order of Santiago. I've heard of it, but it sounds like sort of an offshoot of Freemasonry, but a, a, a separate organization. Is that right? I, I'm, I'm not familiar with them. Right. So what I was researching them was, uh, it was basically saying that they were almost like a Templar offshoot, but Spanish, and that they were part of the Spanish Inquisition, and that when, I, I forget the the Spanish explorer that uh, explored the Mississippi River, he was oh, actually Oh, you're thinking of uh, Dina uh, Sal. No, no um, that's there was, there was another one. No, De La Salle explored the southern half. Cibola. It was an explorer or, that was searching who? for Cibola. The seven cities uh, of Cibola. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know who that is. Uh, Hernando de Soto. De Soto. Oh, de Soto. Okay, right. Yeah, de Soto was farther west and in, in north. De Soto uh, was La Salle started in Montreal and went down the Ohio to the southern to the Mississippi. Right, and then DeSoto went the opposite way. I believe he started near Florida, I want to say, and then went up through a lot of the south into the, the area of the Mississippi River, and he was actually buried in a Templar fashion on the Mississippi River where he died. And there's actually a, I don't know if it's a, a wood carving, but I ended up finding a picture of him wearing the white tunic with the red cross being buried oh, is that right? on the Mississippi. Well, he could have been a more yeah. a, a member yeah, he could have been a member of the order. I mean, if he was in the Iberian Peninsula, the Templars had a very strong presence there, especially in Portugal and in Spain. So um, they may have been an offshoot order. You got to remember that, you know, there are other orders 
than, you know, the Templars. I mean, when the Templars were put down, everybody thinks it was over. But in Portugal, they just changed their name to the Order of Christ and continued on for another 500 years. They weren't officially disbanded in Portugal until 1835. So, you know, for people to say that the Templars didn't exist after 1307 and 1314 when Demolay was burned, it's just not true. It's, it's, it's just not true. Yeah, and I found the DeSoto stories. Yeah, sorry. Oh, sorry. Uh, I just wanted to say I found the, the DeSoto story specifically fascinating because not only was he a member of the Order of Santiago, but so was uh, Cortez, who took over oh, yeah. the Aztecs, as well as, uh, I want to say Pizarro, but I'm not 100% sure. sure if he was. But uh, well, I look, I, these guys were following in the footsteps of the orders that preceded them. I mean, is it a coincidence, do you think, that um, Columbus, uh, you know, went right into the Gulf region and started acquiring wealth? But look, he was using the maps of the Templars because he married into the, the, uh, the, the family descendants. In fact, his right, father-in-law his was, a, was a famous explorer in the Drummond family, and Columbus inherited all of his maps and charts. He didn't discover anything. He knew exactly where he was going. And I mean, the whole notion that Columbus discovered anything at all is, is laughable to me. Um, but in any case, DeSoto, wasn't he buried in a lead box? Yeah, he was buried in a lead box and tossed into the, the Mississippi River. And that's actually the picture that I was telling you guys about yes. right there. Yeah, I, I'm familiar with that story. Wouldn't that be fun to, to find that lead, lead box? At some point, I think somebody will, right? I mean, you'd get a heavy hit on that if you're using a magnetometer or, uh, right. you know, the right equipment. Uh, and I think I've Lights seen that sonar. image. Yeah, I think I've seen that, that image before. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I just wanted to bring it up because I shared it with you a while ago. I and remember that. Yeah, I remember that. Cool. I, I just thought it was fascinating because I'm like, this guy's wearing the white tunic right here, and he has the, the red cross on it. Yeah. Like, that's that's very Templar. And he was part of the, uh, the Order of Santiago, which, so. was, which <laughs> was a Spanish offshoot. So, wow. like you were saying, cool. all, all, there were a ton of different organizations that split off from the Templars after they were persecuted. You did yep. the whole show with uh, Knights Templar and uh, Pirate Treasure. Yeah, yeah that was the, the Order piracy. of Christ. That was the Order of Christ. We went to Portugal, we went to Goa, India, we went to Madagascar in Africa, and uh, yeah, it was amazing. I mean, it was a whole history that that people know nothing about, and it's 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 Templar history. It's just not it's not the sexy you know Crusade period that that people are used to associating with the Templars, and um, it's it's there's just so much more to the story. And of course, you have this whole giant chapter of the Templars coming over to North America, which is what we've been working on all these years. And to think that the Kensington runestone was one of the, you know, one of the major pillars of establishing this sanctuary that became the United States. I mean, the runestone is so important um, and it's, it's just been so misunderstood. And this is a case that eventually history is going to show um, probably, you know, exhibit A of academia that outsmarted itself, thinking they were smarter than everybody else. And well, if we don't know what it is, then it has to be a fake. I mean, 
What kind of investigative logic is that for crying out loud? Jesus. Every time I think about it, it makes me crazy. I, I, I mean, you know, I, I've been involved in it for 21 years and I still just go, did that really happen? Really? <laughs> it's amazing. Yes, and so much has spun off of that. We've had so many things happen because of the runestone that making that connection. I mean, we're here in the middle of the continent in Minnesota where the stone was found at the headwaters of a river system, not just one river system, but the one going to the north, the Red River of the North that runs through Fargo Grand Forks and up into the Hudson Bay. The headwaters of the Mississippi are here in Minnesota. And then you've got the far west end of the Great Lakes watershed. So if, if you're going to place some kind of a land claim stone, where better than here, right? Makes sense. Right, a spot where it's intersecting all these major uh, modes of transportation, all these major Waterways. bodies of water. Yep. Right. And that was and obviously a huge way yes, to get around claim the land associated with Yeah. Yeah, if you could claim that land associated with those watersheds, you, you claimed all the land associated with them. So it was a big deal. That's half the continent. Right. Yeah. Sorry, we had a, a lot of stuff and, going and on then, there. But okay. Yeah, Scott, you oh, were going to say something? Yeah. No, no. I, uh, Janet's everything she said <laughs> makes perfect sense. Oh, just wanted to make sure everybody got their share. <laughs> one of the fun things that, that we figured out with the rune stone a couple of years into the, the research was the stone hole aspect. Are you familiar with the stone holes, Jacob? Yeah. That are around the Omen farm where the ruined stone was found. Right. There's many stones that have hand pounded one inch size or a little bigger triangular shaped holes in rocks. And everybody thought they were mooring stones. I said tri right. triangular. Is that what you're saying, Scott? Uh-oh, I think. Are we frozen? <laughs> anyway, the rune stone I can tell. is surrounded oh, by yeah. rocks, rocks with all these, these uh, stone holes in them. And what we figured out was that they're actually marker stones that are geometrically placed so that you can find the rune stone again. Because if you bury a land claim, how are you going to find it? That was the big question. We've, we've figured out it was a land claim, but how if they buried it, how did they or their brothers in the future locate that land claim stone again? There had to be a way. Well, it was the stone holes. And I, I woke Scott up in the middle of the night with a, a backhand to the chest, and I had that epiphany that that's what they were doing. And, yeah. it, and the reason I did was because I had read a great book by Erling Hoggison and Henry Lincoln called The Templar's Secret Island. Mm -hmm. And that's about- um, Same guys that wrote Holy Blood, Blood, Holy Grail, right? Yes, yeah. about Bornholm in the Baltic Sea and the precise alignments they found there. I didn't understand sacred geometry until I read that book and that really helped. But that's what put it all together for me. And then we went on from there, we went on to figure out that the Newport Tower was also Templar related. And talk about Portugal, we went into this castle in Tomar where they had the altar mm -hmm. and you're in the stone castle and it's 
dark and gloomy, and you come around the corner where their altar was in this round Templar church, but their altar looked just like the Newport Tower, octagonal on eight legs, and it was incredible because it was all painted and gilded with all these biblical scenes. And oh my gosh, I, I literally wanted to fall to my knees in awe when I walked around that corner. Remember that stuff? Yeah, when we I'm, got looking there, I, I'm, I'm looking to see if I can find a picture oh, okay. of it. It was such a funny day. Let's see, portrait oh, of same thing. Um, I'll never forget that day because we'd been shooting. Scott had been shooting all day, and I was there with them. And uh, we were there. Steve St. Clair was there, too, and yeah. Maria Oz from the production company. And Andy, her husband, was the director. And he knew that we had to get up that hill to go see that thing, that castle, by the time it closed. And he literally let us go 15 minutes before the place closed. <laughs> and Scott, I think Scott would have run over dogs and children if he had to, to get there in time. <laughs> because we were so excited to go see that. It was called the Chirola, which was, yeah. if you ever get a chance to go to Portugal and see it, it's an amazing Templar site. A Templar castle built in what was a Templar-founded city, laid out Oh, here we patterns go. of Jerusalem. Amazing. You got a picture of it? Yeah. Of course, we're old we school. Go. We go to books to look. <laughs> no, that's good. Though. I love it. <laughs> now, no, you if you look at. Oh, yeah, I see it now. Yep. And the Templars I would am... actually their horses. Doesn't that look like the Newport Tower? A modern Templar. Yes, it does. And See that's that? looking up at the... At the... Isn't yeah. that crazy? Yeah, yeah that is crazy. That's amazing. The, the architecture is so yeah. beautiful over there. Yeah, yeah. it was really... Uh, it was just crazy, but it was crazy cool. Here, uh, you'll, you'll probably recognize the cross at the top. Yep. That's, that's the Portuguese Templar cross. Uh, is that... But look at the stone Christ? carvings. I mean, mm -hmm. is that ridiculous? It is. The, I can't. Amazing. It's amazing how intricate these carvings are in all these I medieval cath castles and cathedrals throughout Europe. And, and we also anyway. find there's a lot of illuminations that happen too. In the Newport Tower, there's an egg-shaped keystone that illuminates on the winter solstice and also on, is it May Day? Yeah, May 1st. Yeah, it's on May 1st. It's it's, uh, we think it's honoring the Celtic holiday because we know that the Scottish Templars uh, yeah. were behind the construction of the tower. So on May 1st, they would have been celebrating the Celtic holiday of Beltane, which just was a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's awesome. And then you also made a connection to with the Newport Tower to the, the structure above the Christ tomb and the Holy Sepulchre. Well, the architecture is spot on, and it's you know not just there, but that's where that's where I think the Templars were inspired by this this architecture. That um, you know well, this octagonal ar architecture goes back to the planet Venus, the Fibonacci sequence, and the whole uh, key to life in the universe. And this this is why Venus is is called She, right? It's associated with the feminine aspect of the Godhead, 
the reason that the Templars venerate the number eight, why there's eight columns in the tower, eight points on a Templar cross. It goes on and on and on from there, but it's, it's an acknowledgement uh, and an embracing of this sacred geometry of the Fibonacci sequence, which the most common representation of it is a spiral, right? So that is the, the rate show. of exponential growth mm -hmm. of the of the Fibonacci sequence. Yeah. Janet's got I one right necklace, there. Yep. yep. And 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 this is where this goddess veneration comes from, and you know it's it's actually embedded within our craft. And you know I have a lecture, Jacob, that I give about the five pointed star, and. You know, if people are listening right now in the audience, okay, and even though I can't see you raise your hands, I'm going to trust you. But I'm just going to ask a question and raise your hand if you honestly know the answer. And if you don't, don't feel bad because you're not alone. But I think most people would agree that the most iconic symbol of our nation, the United States, is the five-pointed star. Okay, now here's the question. How many people know the origin of the five-pointed star. I don't see too many hands out there. Well, Jacob raised his. <laughs> well, Jacob does because I student. think he's heard the lecture. But, but no, yep. but seriously, I mean, you know, it's 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 everywhere in our society, literally everywhere. People have it on their houses. Uh, the the Dallas Cowboys. I mean, you know, and, and but yet nobody in this country. Uh, we got fifty of them on our flag for crying out loud. Right. But yet nobody understands the origin of that symbol. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it represents the feminine aspect of the goddess, the planet Venus, and the shape that is made um, as we view the planet's movements over eight Earth years. It made the five-pointed star. And the geometry within that five-pointed star contains the Fibonacci sequence or the golden ratio which is represented also by the spiral. So this is why we, you know, this is why it was selected as our, our national symbol. But these Venus families, now you know why we call them the Venus families. This goes way back. I challenge people, go on the internet right now and look at George Washington's family crest mm -hmm. from Europe. Just do it. And now you'll understand where our flag came from. Right. Right, Jan? Yeah, that's right. Oh, looks like it's happening. Oh, there we oh. go. No, there's the movement. There it is. About. That's yeah. the movement of Venus. That's right. The pentagram. Right. In the pentagram, what happened via the Catholic Church? It was demonized, right? It's a symbol of yep. the devil now? Because it was a symbol of the sacred feminine. And there's also Can't some, have that. There's right. also something called the horns of Venus. And what does the devil have? horns so it mm -hmm. all got demonized and that, that's, that's, that's absolutely the, wrong the horns of venus are the shape that the uh, that the planet's movements make when it rises as an eastern star in the in the east and then as an evening star in the west or morning star in the in the east and an evening star in the west those are called the horns of venus so it and rises, again the church uh, the church would you know twist it around to suit their purposes and really, I find it tragic that they've taken this symbol. And to so many people, it's a symbolic representation of the devil, which is something they also created. There is no devil out there. This is nonsense. And it's really sad that people have been brainwashed to believe these things that just simply are, are fabrications. And in fact, 
the five-pointed star. I mean, if it's supposed to be a demon symbol, why is it a symbol of our nation? I mean, there's a conflict right there, right? I mean, it's ridiculous. Exactly. And I'm going to share George Washington's crest as well. Because there you see it again. With the, uh, I see it. The three and stars right there. That? And what red and white. Of those, what are the colors of Color. those stripes? Right, and red and white, the colors red, of the right. Templars. And what are, what are the numbers of the Fibonacci sequence when rounded to whole numbers? One, two, three, five, eight, 13. How many stripes do we have on our flag? There you go. I mean, or how many originally colonies did we have and how many stripes colonies. did we have? Right. right. And now they say the 13 stripes are because of the 13 colonies. Well, why 13 colonies? <laughs> right. Because it was symbolically important. It was their way of acknowledging deity, the goddess, and for the goddess to bless this new nation. And by doing that, we use the symbolic number of 13. And we still do this all the time. Oh, and what happened to the what happened to the number thirteen? Bad luck, right? Well, wait a sec. Somebody demonized that. Who was that again? <laughs> there you go, Catholic Church. Oh yeah, funny. And then we have uh, Friday the thirteenth, the, the yeah. day that the top right. persecution was started. Thirteen oh seven. Well, you know the what? There's more than that. When the Templars were originally founded, the person who wrote the charter for the order was Bernard de Clairvaux. Right. And the uh, they Discretion became an official order on January 13th of 1129. Now, that's either a coincidence or it's not. And the church, believe me, it wasn't lost on them. So when they moved against them, they picked that day on purpose. Right. The 13, repetition of the number 13. It's very symbolic. Right. And, you know, the 13 is also represented by another heavenly body, the moon, right, Janet? I'll let you talk about that because okay. that's a feminine, feminine, you should talk right. about it. Eight days in a lunar cycle, 13 months, right? Oh, okay. And there's also 28 days in the average woman's menstrual cycle. So the moon goddess, in fact, a lot of times you will hear in ancient cultures and indigenous cultures they will say it when a woman has her period they will say it was her moon time she gave her blood to the moon it's very common the indigenous people that. call it moon time right that's yeah. yes right and i think so, that's why uh, there's so much superstition around very, the moon right very much right right would you say jacob so, right, and I think that's why there's so much superstition surrounding the moon. Like the idea that, oh, yeah. these werewolves come out when the moon comes out. Again, the, the demonization <laughs> of the, the symbolism of the moon right there. Yeah, well, you know, there you have, you've got the Venus is uh, a heavenly body that's associated with the goddess. The moon is the other, but there's what they call the triple goddess. What's the third thing? Mother Earth. Mother Earth. <laughs> Teeming with life, right? And the Fibonacci sequence of the golden ratio is incorporated within everything, all life throughout, not just our planet, but throughout the universe. It's that's uh, one of the reasons why we call deity the great architect of the universe. Right. <laughs> the sacred geometry is so prominent. Right, the idea of as above, so below. 
Sorry, I didn't mean to Our founding fathers and mothers were doing exactly that. It's all over Washington, D.C. You can read about it in my book. But uh, they were definitely placing sacred geometry on the ground. There it is again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And in New York City. And we were just there about a month ago and we gave a, a yeah, lecture. Yeah, I loved your connections to New York and uh, Washington, D.C. Yeah, that's yeah, well, the, the, the temple uh, to the obelisks. There. Yeah, there's a line of obelisks that mimic the belt stars of, Osir or of Orion, which was Osiris to the Egyptians, which was all about resurrection. And those obelisks that are placed in New York City, the last one being Cleopatra's Needle in Central Park. Cleopatra's Needle in Central Park was a real Egyptian obelisk brought over here by the Vanderbilts in a ship, which was a feat of ingenious engineering in itself mm -hmm. to get it here. But they placed it, Vanderbilt, because he paid for it, he had the right to place where it was going to go. And he put it in what became Central Park. But at that time, it was out in the boonies. And people wondered, well, why do you want to put it way out there? Well, it's because of the formation it made with the other two obelisks that had been placed there before that <laughs> earlier in the 19th century including the first one at St. Paul's Chapel down in the in the heart, well, I would call it the southern part, near where the World Trade Centers were. It survived that miraculously, but it's the oldest chapel in, in the city, and our founding fathers were, were there. Ben Franklin, George Washington, Lon Font, who, who laid out the plans for Washington, D.C., they were all part of that chapel and it's designed La Font designed the beautiful glory altar piece in there. But that that is there is no doubt that there is a sacred architecture there. It's the the dog leg of those three belt stars is laid out there. And Vanderbilt left a clue that still exists. If you go to Grand Central Station, if you've ever been in there, it's gorgeous. But the the ceiling is a barrel vault ceiling, and on the ceiling is painted the constellations, and one of them being Orion. It's the only one that's backwards. And for many, many years, the Vanderbilts have been criticized about that, including when the ceiling was repainted and cleaned, and why didn't you fix it? And they always just smile and say, it's perfectly correct, because it's the temple of Osiris, Orion. And it's made, made to be viewed from above, not from down below. And that's a clue. And what's, what does it point to? Out in the harbor. Who's out there? Statue of Liberty. Yep. The goddess. The goddess Isis, right? The consort of Orion. And there you have it. All right, we're going to take a short break here. Uh, I have some background noise. In it. There we go. Sorry about that. And uh, welcome back to the show, everybody. Uh, I want to get back into, uh, I don't think Scott's here yet, so I'll wait for him to get here. But uh, Janet, yeah. uh, let's talk more about your book. And uh, are, are you planning on writing some more, possibly yeah. publishing a second? Uh, yeah. Ellen and I have been working on another one, be a sequel to this one. But uh, he's had some health problems this year, 
among, and also, you know, of course, COVID has put the kibosh on a lot of things, but um, I, I'm, he, I'm hopeful that he is now over the worst of his situation and he will be in a better place where we can get back to doing our research again and finish up what we started. So hopefully we will be getting something out there again. Yeah, because I really love, and I know I've said this several times, but I really loved American Nation of the Goddess. You and Ellen made for, for such a great team, and I think the book you guys ended up putting together was phenomenal. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank like, specifically, yeah, you know, Ellen is your connections to New York, I to had no idea. Like, when it came to New York, uh, a lot of people are familiar with Washington, D.C., well, maybe Christopher Hodap and uh, some of the stuff that your, your husband's son, Scott, with the, the Kensington Runestone. But I loved your guys' connections to the Grange, like I was saying, and your connections to New York, because I had no idea the, all the connections to New York that the Templars and Freemasons may have. Yes, yes. And we, you know, one of the other things that we worked on was Washington, D.C., as you mentioned, and there's a lot going on there. And the thing that I think I was the most... Mm, most excited about was what we discovered with the Washington Monument and the shaft play that was built into that. And it, it's amazing. I mean, you have to remember the people that designed, designed the Washington Monument and the placement of it and all the monuments around it and the rest of the city the shadow points to, they didn't have computers. They didn't have calculators. And these are amazing feats of engineering and, and astronomy to be able to track this so accurately that they can they could place on a certain day that the tip of the shadow would touch a certain place around the National Mall. That's incredible, including the first thing that, that Alan had discovered before I even started working with him was that during the mystery of Demeter time, which was in September, which is when our constitution was signed, no coincidence, right? Constitution day is September 17th, which is also the mystery of Demeter's time during the, the that's when the ancient mystery schools were happening. And uh, the shadow of the Washington monument marches right down the mall and right up the stairs of the Capitol on that day. And that's, that's amazing. And if you stand at the tip of the shadow of the monument, which we have done, and you look up, it looks like the sun is sitting right on top of the Washington Monument. Oh, wow. That's amazing. And, yeah. and the Vescopiskis, right? What? Yeah, had a connection to the Vescopiskis? Yes. Yeah. Washington Christ. Monument as yeah. well, right? Yes. Well, the symbolic of the... Yes, and that's in, it's sitting in a Vesica Pisces on the ground. Because you don't realize that unless you look at it from the sky or if you're, right. you have those oh, eyes that are trained to notice that kind of stuff. That's right. That's right. And we, we went, well, Scott and I went there on the winter solstice because that's when the real magic happens with the monument in the shadow play. Because that's the, as I always tell Scott, his birthday is December 21st also. The shortest, shortest, darkest day of the year. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so we were there one year because Alan and I had written this in our book, but we knew we had to go witness it on the ground because we had programs we were using 
and we knew it should work. But as any good scientist would tell you, as my husband told me, you guys got to get out in the field. You got to get out there and make sure it really works. And so we did. He went with me. Alan couldn't come. So we went out there and Alan told us what time. We were there a little bit before the solstice. It was like the 18th, 17th or 18th. But we knew it would be getting close to what it really does on the solstice, which is it just touches the ellipse and penetrates into the ellipse. So think of it as a fertility symbol where it's it's like a giant egg being fertilized by the sun, represented mm -hmm. by the national or by Washington's monument. So we stood there and it was a partly cloudy day and we couldn't see our shadows as strongly as we hoped we could in the shadow of the monument, but we were able to figure it out by where we could see the sun on the tip. And it was a cloudy, you could just see the orb of the sun through the clouds. And then we decided the next day we had to go up in the monument and try to see the shadow looking down. And we were able to do that. And we thought we had missed it. We knew the time of day it was supposed to happen. And the minutes ticked by and it was cloudy, no shadow. Scott wandered away from the window and I stood there for a couple more minutes and I just went, oh, come on, <laughs> come on for a minute. I just gotta see this. And boom, it happened. Woo. It was so fun. Yeah, you guys haven't been up there. It's it's a, such an amazing view too, because I, I went yeah. to DCO quite a while ago. That's hey, such a great view of the city. Speaking of that, um, something just uh, oh, I, you know during the break, I just checked my email and get this. Um, I just got this email, and I'm just going to read it to you. And this is really cool because it's relevant to Washington D.C. Um, sent on behalf of Alan Kilsheimer, and Janet knows that name. Mm. Good evening. It's coming up on the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 terrorist attacks. Hard to believe, isn't it? We are writing to the firms who worked on the Phoenix Project, the Pentagon rebuild, rather than individuals, since we do not know if people are still working at the same place. You may remember that in 2006, there was a dinner with all the workers we could find who participated in the Phoenix project. And I just had a thought that it might be appropriate to do something like that again for the 20th anniversary. Mm. So we are wondering what your thoughts are. For those of you still around your firm that actually worked on the Phoenix project or anyone you're still in contact with at any firm who is retired, et cetera, would you please let us know if you would be interested? Let's roll, Alan Kilsheimer. Oh wow! That's um, great. Yeah, that's 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 pretty cool because, um, you know what, Jacob? Um, you know, someday, uh, you know, when they put me in the ground, um, you know, a lot of people think of me as doing, you know, the host of the show and the Kensington Runestone and. And all of that, but really, what I'll probably be remembered for is the work we did at the Pentagon after 9/11. Right. And I have to say, um, I, I, I'm probably the most proud of that work because mm -hmm. I just was talking to somebody today. It came up again today with somebody else when I was at the office, and um, I was recalling, you know, how frustrated everybody was, and how horrible it was, and how pissed everybody was, and you know, everybody wanting to, you know, I want to do something, right? And um, and we actually had a chance to, to do something and and uh, do the investigation on the fire damage 
concrete at the Pentagon and, and, and based on our work, they completely changed their approach from a surgical repair to a tear it out and replace the whole thing. And, um, you know, it was really an honor to be part of that. And I remember when I went to the construction site a couple of times during the rebuild, after we had finished our work, um, you know, it was, it was a totally different vibe, a totally different feel than any other construction site I'd, I'd ever been on because there was a sign um, that was above the whole thing with a clock ticking down to the very moment that the attack happened one year later. And we wanted to finish the rebuild prior to the one year anniversary. And we did, we got done three weeks early, but on top of that sign with the clock ticking down were two words, um, let's roll. And um, you might remember that there was uh, um, one of the persons, um, and, and I'm trying to remember his name because his he lives name, right over. I know his name, his name was Todd Beamer. Todd Beamer. And the reason um, I know that is because last night you had another interview and I, you and I were talking about this. Yes, too. I couldn't, couldn't remember. That's so weird. I can't believe you got this email today. Well, I know people that went to, went to high school with him. Yeah. And here he, in was, Minnesota. he was the guy who was on the phone with his wife. And this was the flight 93 that went down in Pennsylvania when, mm -hmm. you know, the passengers attacked the hijackers and he was one of them. And the last thing he said to his wife is, we're going to go get the hijackers. I love you, honey. And before he hung up, he said, let's roll. And uh, and that was the phrase. And, and and not the world didn't know about Todd Beamer's phrase at that time, but we did. And it set the tone for the whole thing. And there was no screwing around. It was all business. It was all work. And many of the people there had lost loved ones. And um, yeah. it was an honor to be part of that. So now they want to do a 20th anniversary I say I'm in. Let's roll. <laughs> so there's a breaking story for you, Jacob. Yeah, and on the other hand of that, uh, the work of a geologist is not all Jurassic Park and fossils. That's I think right. That's a that's big right. one. So no, that's right. there's a whole other side to it, and I, I think as much as you guys are specifically Scott, as much as you're credited for all the research you've done, you also help with the, the whole 9/11 stuff, and I'm sure. Like you're saying, that's just as just as important, if not more important. And like yeah. I was saying, that's not yeah. that's the other side of the work of a geologist. It's not all yeah. fun and games and finding fossils and playing with rocks all day. Well, it's helping hey, out these people that need that need the help. Concrete is is a, is a man-made rock. Um, we've got uh, sand, rock, coarse aggregate. Um, Cement is is fired limestone, which is a rock, and um, you know you add water to it and it gets hard. So really, uh, a geology uh, studying concrete, you're you're studying a man-made rock. So there really isn't that much of a difference. It is a different uh, a different thing, but um, you know it's it's right up our alley. Do you still do any diving right. for uh, Lake Superior agates? Oh, yeah. <laughs> In fact, I was supposed to go last week, but our friends that host us up there are really busy. They run they run the local restaurant up there and they're building a new building to facilitate events, weddings and parties and things. And so 
uh, I, said, I said, what do you say? Do you want to get wet? He's like, dude, he says, I'd love to, but I, I just can't right now. we got to get this work done. And believe me, um, it would take something, you know, uh, really, really important to, uh, you know, for him to, uh, to not want to go. But we went you know, last year and, and we'll go later this year. I, I, I make a trip up there at least once a year, usually twice a year. And uh, we've got we'll a spot there. and it and it delivers. We'll get up there. It's a beautiful area, just beautiful. Way up in that that tip of the Keweenaw Peninsula, uh, the UP, up in in Lake Superior. It's gorgeous. That's awesome. Yeah, I just want to bring really that up because I I got into diving recently, and that's something that I I would love to go up there. And oh, do really? Well, so. Okay, good for you, man. Hey, let me tell you something, though. Be careful and pay attention to the rules. I, uh, I lost my dad scuba diving, and, uh, you know, I've, it took me a while to get back in the water, but I finally did, and I was, and you know what it was? It was diving for agates with my friend up in the UP, and, um, you know, I got back into it, and, uh, but, you know, respect the water, and, uh, you know, I, there have been a couple times, in fact, there was one time on the show when I was diving in a cave and I got to a point where a treasure was beckoning me to go further. And I said, no, nope, I got to I got to back off. And um, it's it's just absolutely magical underwater. But you really got to be careful because uh, it, it's dangerous, but it's it's a hell of a lot of fun. Yeah, for sure. And uh, we're adding the near of our uh getting to the end of our time here. And uh, I want to bring up many final questions or thoughts that you guys want to share. And uh, Janet, if you have anything, uh, the floor is open to you. Um, well, you know, thinking about this 9-11 and pen the Pentagon stuff, I remember Scott was working really hard during that time after the attacks and uh, he was getting samples flown in by the military of fire damaged concrete at four o'clock in the morning and was literally working every waking hour. And there are a lot of other people behind the scenes after that attack that not just the Pentagon, of course, but in New York who were working so hard and putting so much of their heart and soul into trying to help us recover from that attack. And, you know, I, I'm proud to say that we were me by extension, I didn't do any of the work, but I knew what was going on and watched him struggle with it all and the emotional struggle with it as well. You know, there was the smell of jet fuel on the concrete and it was, um, it was a tough time. And we thankfully didn't lose anybody directly in our families, but uh, you know, I, I admire a lot of the work that Scott does as a geologist slash petrographer, which is a tough word to say. Petrographer. <laughs> petrographer. And uh, like he said, concrete is a major constituent of our infrastructure. And we need people like him to keep us safe. Because we, up here in Minneapolis, we experienced the 35W bridge collapse too. Yeah. And even yeah. though that wasn't related to concrete, that was a, a structural failure of the steel. Um, you know, there's a lot of bridges that are made of concrete and people like Scott 
are there to keep us safe, the, the work they do in engineering. And our son is also a structural engineer, Grant, and we're very proud of him. And he also is working now to keep the public safe, so. Well, thank you, I appreciate it. Yeah. And, <laughs> I mean, you know, as a, as a licensed professional, the number one thing that we are responsible for is the health, safety, and welfare of the public. and and. Um, you know, uh, we all take that very seriously, the people that are licensed as professionals. So um, there's a lot of people, you know, engineers and architects, uh, physicians, nurses, uh, firefighters, first responders, police. There are a lot of people, and of course our military, um, you know, there are a lot of people that are doing work that people I think take for granted sometimes. Um, and, uh, there's a lot of really great people out there that are that are doing things to to keep us all safe and and allow us to enjoy, you know, the good life that we lead. And you know, we just went through a really difficult period with COVID, but we're coming out of it, and uh, and things are going to get better. But you know, one thing I think that COVID should also remind people is, um, you know, sometimes we get complacent with the good things that we have. And uh, we forget um, how fortunate we are. And I think COVID was a, was a good uh, wake up call for, for all of us that, um, yeah. you know, life isn't always a bed of roses and you never know what's going to happen. So you have to appreciate the good times when they come. For sure. And uh, I'll give uh, Janet a plug here. If you guys haven't read American Nation of Goddess, make sure you guys go check it out. Uh, you wrote a wonderful book. Also, make sure you guys stay. Uh, Thank you. Stay excited for uh, a possible second, a sequel to the book. And yes, then, um, get going on that, Jan. You and Alan, let's go. <laughs> I know I they've got I'm excited. To get for it. Oh yeah, I'm I'll excited. I'm waiting for it. Uh, I'll All be right. one of the first ones to buy a copy. <laughs> hey, by the way, um, I'll just give a plug, not just for Janet, but but for all of us. Uh, if people are interested in getting signed copies of Janet's book or my any of my books, uh, go to our website. We sign all uh, books uh, that are bought off our website. It's www.hookedx.com. Oh. Uh, there's the evidence. See? There's one right there. Yeah. And make sure when you put in www.hookedx, H-O-O-K-E-D-X.com, if you don't include the X, you'll end up at the wrong website. <laughs> oh, no. Awesome. Awesome. And uh, as well as Scott's book, I, I think it's probably uh, a little bit old now, but uh, Cryptic Code as well. Well, it's yeah. old. Yeah. That one's about well, a year and a half old. Me. Janet's yeah. five years old going on yeah. six. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, make sure you guys go check out Cryptic Code as well. Uh, another great book. Yeah. And uh, Scott, are you working on any other projects? Yes. So, <laughs> so stay tuned yeah, for his as well. It. We're working on um, probably the, the, the culmination of um, what has been, you know, 21 years of research. It started with the Kensington Runestone. It's all come full circle. And uh, it's, it's really, um, it's come together so beautifully. I think we know... We know the whole story now, don't we, Jam? We know how it all happened, and we're just we're we're hoping that we'll have possibly another uh, television show 
to present this story. And it's, it's a good one. Believe me, whatever you think you knew before, this will exceed your expectations. And I will also tell you this, we have the answer now definitively to the question of uh, the mystery of Oak Island. Yeah, that was another question I wanted to ask you, but like I said, uh, we're getting towards the end of our time here. Yeah. I want to thank you both for being the phenomenal researchers that you are. Uh, keep well, keep you. it up. Uh, I really appreciate your guys' work. That was something I read when I was quite a bit younger. Scott knows that <laughs> from experience. Yeah. And uh, yeah, thank you guys for joining the show today. Great. Thank you. Thanks, well, Jacob, thanks, thanks for having us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Yep, and if you guys ever want to come on and talk again, you're more than welcome to. But cool. with that, well, we'll be um, in touch. Yeah, for sure. All right. But with that, thanks everybody for watching, and uh, we'll see you in the next one.